You're listening to I Lucked Out, a podcast memoir of retired civil rights attorney Harvey Friedman. My name is Jeremy Neff, I'm your host, and this week we have an episode titled Running from the KKK. Honestly, that's all the introduction that it needs, but I'll give you a little bit of backstory. Harvey, at this point in his life, is a baby-faced young lawyer who just got fired from the city attorney position or assistant city attorney position in Miami Beach because he wouldn't send a couple gay dancers to jail. What a good guy. Our story ends in the back roads of Mississippi in a slightly hairier situation. I'll let Harvey take it away. When I uh, was fired from that job as assistant city attorney, I decided I was going to finally take this civil rights job that I wanted. And I got the job and my parents went crazy because they wanted me to be a rich real estate lawyer. Sure. And uh, they couldn't believe I was going to do this and going to go to Washington and etc. So I did. And uh, after about three months uh, in my job doing my civil rights thing, uh, I was sent out to a little town in Mississippi. I don't recall the name of the town. I only know is that it was about 70 miles from Jackson, Mississippi. And I know that I had a hotel room in Jackson. And my field trip one day was to visit a junior college, a black junior college, in this little town. And I drove there. And by the way, I had a Lincoln. Government uh, employees do not get Lincolns. They don't rent Lincolns, you know, even in that day. Uh, I had a Lincoln because in my job, you needed a fast car and a powerful car in case you had to escape. And so civil rights workers with the government, at least lawyers, let's put it that way, (laughs) who were civil rights workers, were given high-powered cars. So I had a Lincoln and I drove to this little town from Jackson. Did anyone ever tell you, okay, we're giving you a Lincoln because it's fast and you might escape? Yes. Or was that under- yeah? Oh, they were very direct. They were very direct. Who told you that? Well, like, my boss. Your boss did? My your boss. bosses? Were just Robert, like, Saunders, Robert Saunders. One of them. Yeah. And he was a black lawyer who often had to escape himself. Jesus. Um, I don't know if he actually had to escape, right. but was prepared to do was so ready. necessary. Mm-hmm. Harvey's not kidding around. To give you an idea of what it was like for civil rights workers in that time, I'm going to play you a clip from an orientation for people about to go down to Mississippi for the first time. I'm just wondering if people in this room understand, one, that people should be expected to get beaten, they should expect to spend in jail, and it may go beyond the summer when they're in jail, depending upon what the bond is, and that they should expect possibly somebody to get killed. This particular clip has been saved for posterity because it includes footage of Andrew Goodman, 
who was killed later that summer in exactly the type of situation the man on tape describes. Here's Walter Cronkite talking about the murders of Goodwin, Schwerner, and Cheney. That dark-haired boy sitting in the middle of a group of civil rights workers was Andrew Goodman as he listened to a lecture at a civil rights seminar in Ohio last week. Tonight, Andrew Goodman and two companions, Mickey Schwerin and James Cheney, are the focus of a whole country's concern. They have been missing since Sunday in Mississippi, where they had gone as part of the Mississippi Freedom Summer Project, a project designed to draw national attention to the problem of Negro rights in that state. Although their bodies were eventually found, the murders of Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner struck fear into the hearts of civil rights activists for years to come, and that includes Harvey, of course. They weren't the only people murdered, though. There have been many, many, many people who have died in the fight for civil rights, and those three and Martin Luther King are far from the only ones. All right. Let's get back to our story where Harvey is trying to change the world one little church at a time. And uh, so I drove there to this little town and uh, was at the junior college when, man, an idea hits me because I passed this beautiful little church. I didn't know. I mean, it was like very picturesque. Mm-hmm. I had no idea it was black, white. Of course, everything was completely segregated. It would be one or the other. And it turned out to be black. And I would talk to people at the college about this beautiful church I said I saw. And what I found out is that no white person had ever been to that church at night. Um, and that, which is, they held services both during the day and at night. No white person, and these people told me that they doubted that a white person had ever been there during the day, except maybe for the sheriff. <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> and when I heard this, I had an idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My idea was black, uh, whites are going to go to this church at night while I'm here. I'm going to see to it. How do you do this? I had some conversations with the pastor who backed off immediately at this horrifying thought. First of all, he didn't want whites in his church. Mm-hmm. It wasn't mm-hmm. that it wasn't only uh, that they weren't allowed, but he didn't want them in his church. But I convinced him that this would be a big breakthrough, and here I was to make breakthroughs. I'll bike with little kids, but as long as I'm here, I want to help you 
desegregate the whole South. I mean, I put this <laughs> in cosmic terms. Cosmic. Right. <laughs> and I'm sure I had a wonderfully convincing <laughs> argument, and finally he was just going for it. And he arranged this, and uh, within a day or two, um, announced that there'd be a service and whites were invited. And the word got out. And by the way, this uh, took several days. And in the interim, I was driving back and forth from the little town to Jackson, where I was comfortably staying in a hotel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and on the night designated for the service, I drove back there. It was early evening. It wasn't dark. And uh, I just parked my car, and there were, I don't know, maybe a max of 50 people in this place, because it was very small. And uh, there were a number of whites. The number probably was seven-plus Jewish me. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Who is white? <laughs> um, and the service started, and we were, uh, I was going with it, and uh, there's an organist playing this beautiful, melodious music, and all of a sudden, there's the smell of kerosene wafting in through the windows. And we all almost simultaneously jumped up and crowded around these windows and looked out to see these men, I guess they were men, more men, in white sheets and they had on not the hood you see in the movie but really they were close enough to tell that they had on pillowcases white pillowcases and cutouts for their eyes and they were burning there was a fire going with this they were feeding kerosene or it was coming out of a kerosene barrel, or something of that sort, to create this smoke, and it was which was going into the church, and they were just marching around, very, very silently. It was not a word. Uh, you couldn't hear a murmur from them. And the, the windows were open, so you could tell this is pretty close up. And we were all very scared. I mean, terrified. Starting to wonder if it was a good idea or not. More than that. I <laughs> wished I wasn't there. <laughs> yeah. Because... <laughs> This is not good news. Yeah. Um, 
because I was determined to drive back to Jackson, Mississippi that night with these, what I guess were Ku Klux Klan, knowing that I was there. They knew what was going on. They knew the civil rights worker was in town. Mm -hmm. Whenever I'd come into a town, people would stare and know that I was mm -hmm. there. Sure. Um, we tried to make it public. It was our business, the people who were in this work. So I figured they were after me, or would be after me. We went outside, and all these guys were gone. No one. Not a soul. The kerosene can or whatever it was was there, smoldering, but no people in white sheets and pillowcases. And it was dead quiet, except for the crickets. And then we started talking. About what was going on, and I said, "I have to go now." And that's when the noise started. This congregation went crazy. You can't leave. You can't go. You can't go on those roads. The road was seventy miles to Jackson. It had no lights on it. An occasional farmhouse or whatever house it was along the way. And uh, it was very desolate. And to drive back uh, through that, uh, through those desolate roads alone at night, um, after alerting the Ku Klux Klan, was very scary, but if I didn't do this, um, I would not have completed my mission. And my mission was to provide a lesson, not to be scared. I was quaking. <laughs> yeah. I was terrified. <laughs> In those days, I didn't take clonopin, so I had nothing to calm me down. <laughs> and I, uh, you know, said, uh, so I'm going, I'm going, bye. And I got into my car, and it was this very powerful Lincoln. And I whizzed out of the little parking lot, and I drove back to Jackson at breakneck speed, spending most of my time looking out of the rear window <laughs> <laughs> in a state of terror. But no one was following me. I got back to the hotel, 
I whizzed up to the hotel. I got to my room and there was this mirror on my dresser. I recall it so clearly. And the mirror was held in the center by uh, like uh, pins or nails and you could uh, flip it uh, so that you could see yourself from different angles, which I had done before. (laughs) (laughs) But now I just left the mirror in place. And I looked in that mirror and um, I didn't cry and I didn't scream and I didn't say, oh, thank God. And I just say, said to myself silently, wow, I just did the first real thing I've ever done in my life. End of story. Mm-hmm. Good thing you had that link in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it matters, it seems. (laughs) No one was following me. (laughs) But um, that was what went on there. I just read something like over half of all terrorist acts in the last 10 years in the United States have been white supremacists. Well, you know, the uh, Kerner Commission, which is the National Advisory Commission on um, Civil Disorders, which was actually formed before Martin Luther King's death, um, the year before, was formed in response to the Watts riots, I think, in Mm -hmm. 1967 or so, wrote, the commission wrote that the problems in the country were caused by white racism and um, and they really lambasted the police in that report and I look now uh, 50 or more years later and I don't see much change That's our show. Thanks for listening. You can find more materials and other podcasts, memoirs, and exciting stuff on our website, ilucktout.com, as well as some stories that might show up in Harvey's upcoming memoir, I Lucked Out. Again, my name is Jeremy Neff. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you tune in to the next episode.